It's a blustery, windy, snowy day here in the Twin Cities, and you are with us on That 90s Baseball Pod, powered by XS Twins. I'm your host, Brandon Ward. Across the screen from me is Mr. Greg Olson. Greg, how are we doing? Good, Brandon. Nice to see you. you Sorry about blustery weather. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's chilly and blustery and all that fun stuff. I'm not going to get uh, too far down that road, though, because we have a very fun guest in a limited amount of time. Mr. Bill Ripken. Bill, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you guys today? Doing good, B-Rip. Nice to have you on, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you. 90s baseball, you said. That kind of made me start thinking. Yeah. Yeah, Hopefully it's it's something you haven't uh, talked too much with other people about. Now, I got to say, one of my favorite things about you, and it's a 90s memory, and I think probably you don't talk about it much, is you were on, or do you know where you were on, let's see, December 29th, 1997? No, I don't know where I was. WCW Nitro. Was I really? Yeah. So you were on the TV there. Um, I'm a big WCW like historical fan. And so um, there's actually a screenshot. Maybe I'll find it and email it to you. They, I think they give you a little name bar and everything. And you wait, kind of do like peace to the camera and all that. And uh, I don't know. They said you had, uh, you had just signed with the Tigers, I think, because it was before your last year in the big leagues. But I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's pretty cool. No, so isn't this the proverbial thing you do in front of cameras now? I was almost reverting back to my kid days with the peace sign. But so the WCW, did they come through Baltimore? Is that where I was? Uh, you know what? They had the pay-per-view the, the night before in Baltimore. Yeah, Baltimore Arena. They were in D.C. the night before, I think. Right. So um, obviously I was in the front row, too. Because yes. I don't, yep. I don't go any other way because no one can stand up in front of me. Well, that's fair. That's fair. But anyway, I... I I didn't know if that's ever been thrown at you in any way, shape, or form. And as Greg will attest, I'm usually the guy that asks the questions you haven't been asked before. Greg, would you tend to agree? <laughs> I got. I got to think that one got you. Yeah, I've never been. Never, that's never been discussed. And I'll go back even further. Since you're a big wrestling fan, I was actually at a Survivor Series. Oh, wow. um, so that's Thanksgiving down in DC. Um, I know Hogan and Macho Man were tag team partners there. Um, they were carrying Miss Elizabeth in. So I was down at the Survivor Series years and years and years ago. So I did see one of those pay-per-view events from the front row as well. Wow. So that's probably like 91, early 90s, probably, um, maybe late 80s. I actually got to see, and this is kind of fun and we'll get off the subject, a Buried Alive match with Undertaker. So that was cool for a pay-per-view. Um, I'm sure Greg's just kind of uh, get here and fuzz in his ears, but um, probably not the way you expected this to start talking to us about 90s baseball nope. with uh, 90s professional wrestling references and watching uh, Sting win the title the night before and Goldberg and all that fun stuff. No, we, we usually go, you know, in, in uh, rabbit holes that I rarely <laughs> expect. So um, this was a good one. Yeah. It's a good rabbit hole. Well, yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't start the show with asking you what it was like to be teammates with this guy, because uh, you'd been in the big leagues for a little while and your path was a little different. I mean, we, we joked that Greg was in the minors for about a half an hour. Um, you had the full minor league experience and you've been in the big leagues for a while. So you were pretty seasoned vet at this point. But um, what was it like seeing this fresh faced kid from Auburn come up there and uh, do pretty well? Well, first and foremost, there are few and far between like Ole when, they spend as little time in the minor leagues as they do. Those are the guys that are given and they're going to get there. Most of the people who played in the big leagues were guys that went through their trials and tribulations like I did in the minor leagues. 
And that actually includes my brother. He went a full season of rookie ball, A ball, double A, and got called up in September of his triple A season. So he spent full freight through there as well. So when you see a guy come up through the minor leagues or spend a little time in the minor leagues and then get to the big leagues, you hope that there's a reason for that. And I don't think Ole disappointed us because he got up to the big leagues. And I believe at the time before K-Rod came along, Ole might have been the first guy to 100 saves as -hmm. far as the age uh, requirement went. So we knew he was pretty special, had a good heater. And that, of course, that um, hammer from hell that he dropped on an awful lot of people. So it was a lot of fun to watch him. Um, He kind of came in, hit the ground running. And uh, was was the guy at the back end of our pen right away. So did you I, sh- I should have looked this up, but did you ever get a chance to face him later in your career? No, never fa- faced Ole. I faced a couple of my former teammates, but Ole went and spent some time in Arizona, mm-hmm. got away from the American League side of it. And we never ran into each other in uh, that that kind of a, a setting. But um Probably I think it would have you. been okay to face him later in his career because I don't think he had as much heater and as much hook as he did when I first saw him. Because I remember some of the times, especially Oakland, for example, uh, I think he struck out the side to close out a game against the Oakland A's when they were the big, bad Oakland A's. And he was paralyzing yep. uh, people with some pretty good hammers. And you're only sitting there playing behind him pretty much thankful that you don't have to be on the other side of that and actually see it from that end of it. I, I think we've talked about that, Greg, you, your save where you came in and punched out, was it uh, Dave Henderson and was yeah, big Mac part of that? Parker and McGuire. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's yeah. like a who's who of uh, the, the middle of an order back in those days. Well, well I, see, and, and also with McGuire, I'm sorry, Ole, I cut you off. But I got to throw this out there. McGuire was sitting there and McGuire was a pretty good off-speed hitter, if I remember correctly, change-ups and hooks. And Ole throw him a first pitch hook, and it would jelly leg him. You could see him just kind of flinch. And then Mac would kind of even spread out further. And Ole throw him another hook, and it would still jelly leg him. And it was a called strike. And then he would spread out further, like saying, I'm not going to budge on this hook. And he would break another hook off on him and just paralyze the dude in the batter's box. And that's to a guy that was a pretty good off-speed pitcher uh, hitter um, with the breaking balls, especially if they were up. But Ole was throwing control, controlled strikes with hooks yeah. and just locking this dude up. Yeah, I want to say he hit a homer on a breaking ball at the Kingdom that didn't land until they imploded the building uh, a couple years <laughs> later. So he, I, I think your memory is right on him hitting uh, off-speed and breaking balls. So, Ole, do you want to tell the story about when I think you were 0 for, uh, what, Mac was 0 for 6 against you with six punch outs, and then he went 1 for 7 with a homer? Is that right? <laughs> I remember that one, huh? <laughs> do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, – we were in Baltimore. I had a three-run lead, guy on first, and it was – and my catcher, same guy who Mid. told me to kind of bow tie uh, Parker that, that night in Oakland. Uh, Mickey Tettleton and he was putting one finger down one finger down and I'm like no no and we had to sit there for five minutes and I'm shaking no Cal comes in and I don't remember how we got to the point where Mickey won the fight but it was like all right here's a fastball up and away and McGuire takes it out to right center for a bomb and I'm like going and Mickey walks up after the game I got out of it shakes my hand and he goes 
I'm sorry. I will never do that again. And I was like, thanks. I also thought he told you because he went out there and said, look, we got a three-run lead to work with. Throw him a heater. And you said, no, I'm going to throw him a hook. He can't hit my hook. And then he hit the heater out. And he came out and he goes, okay, we got a two-run lead to work with now. <laughs> was, was it uh, – was it Merker that told the Barry Bond story that's similar where he hadn't gotten him and then at the end he did? I know it was one of the guests we had recently, but it yeah, reminds it, me of that it, too where it, a guy it, owned him. And Mer yeah, Merker hadn't given up a bomb to Barry Bonds and it was like listed on ESPN the night before. Oh, that's right. Sports one Center of the baseball only, tonight. One of the only guys with no walks and no home runs given up to Barry Bonds in the big leagues and Merker sees it on ESPN the next day bonds gets him and just kind of winks at him running down the first baseline. He saw it. So did Merker do his, um, few good men impersonations is nope, uh, Jack Nicholson from a few good men from the stand when oh, you had man. him on. No, I didn't know about that. You didn't know about his, his stuff. that was really good. So you got to spend all that time out there in the, um, bullpens, but you weren't with us then when Merker played with us in Baltimore. Yeah. So in 96, I'm back with the, um, the Orioles. We're in Oakland again. And Brady Anderson had a little bit of a groin problem. Something was bothering him. He gets a walk in the uh, ninth inning. Um, he's on first base. Davey Johnson's a manager, sends out a pinch runner for him. So Brady probably never been pinch run for in his life because Brady <laughs> no. can run. So Brady's out there at first base kind of shaking his head, no, like don't send him out. And you know how far Oakland is away from the, the dugout. So there's a lot of room. And I'm sitting next to Merker uh, on the bench, and he's basically doing Jack Nicholson as Brady Anderson would be on the field from the stands saying, you're taking me out of this game because that's funny. And he's just narrating this whole thing as it all plays out. And it was just, it was unbelievable. But his Jack Nicholson from the stand and a few good men was perfect. And he did Brady from the distance and basically said at the end of it, you're going to want me on that center field wall. You're going to need me on that center field wall. But um, Brady came out of the game. I don't know what ended up happening in the game because I'm still looking at Merck uh, in amazement that uh, how good he was at doing the Jack Nicholson stuff. I missed it. All right. Give me a second. Brandon, take take over for a split second. I got somebody here. Hold on. Oh wow, yeah. No, I, I what I want to know is, uh, you know, what what was it like growing up with baseball? I mean, I, I assume you had baseball um, as far back as you can remember. What was that upbringing like? Because, uh, you know, for me, I didn't start playing organized ball till I was about twelve, and you know, I played in the yard when I was like eight, and so did you really like? Was it ingrained in you before, like your first memories? Um. Kind of yes and no. Um, it was interesting. The three years I remember most when you were talking about playing in the backyard when you were eight. Yeah. Dad was managing the last three years, uh, the minor leagues in 1972, 73, 74. So I'm definitely dating myself. I was seven, eight, nine years old those years in Asheville, North Carolina with the double A Orioles. So we'd load up the uh, car. Mom would load up the car and take us to wherever dad was once sure. school was out. And Played a lot of uh, tape ball with the broomstick and rolled up tape balls in the backyard with my brother um, there. But I was always allowed, if we wanted to go, to the ballpark with dad on that given day. So yeah. at seven, I might have gone, you know, once if there was a six-day homestand. The next year, I might have gone twice. My nine-year-old year – um, I was actually the bat boy at home games. Okay. So I was pretty much there probably the whole time. 
doing those uh, doing those games. So I remember just baseball is in the double A Orioles coming up through Asheville. So, you know, I saw uh, Doug DeSensei and Rich Dower and Al Bumbry. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys were all the guys that came up through the system. So I'm out there playing catch, yeah. you know, with these guys before the game. So I, I think it was part of us, but it was also to the point where dad, dad never told us, me or Cal, to go to the ballpark. If we asked him to go to the ballpark, he didn't say no. Yeah. He would say yes, but he understood that we wanted to be kids. And that includes like Cal, because he was probably what, 11, 12, and 13, mm-hmm. you know, those three years. So we stayed in an apartment complex and had this big pool and high dive and all this stuff. So he knew we also needed to be kids when we wanted to be kids. So he never forced it, forced it on us, but we always had the option to be able to do it. And he didn't say no if we asked. So you mentioned tape ball. You guys ever play in the house and get yelled at for that, or was it all outside? I don't know how much we got yelled at because we actually thought that playing ball in the house was okay as if it was the proper stuff. So the tape ball turned into the mini the mini bats, you know, the 12-inch bats or 18-inch bats and ping pong balls in the house. And if you had a ping pong ball and you could flip the knuckle curve, you can make it do some stuff. And we were constantly doing something like that. And it didn't always have to involve regular baseball with the full bat and the full ball because we'd wait after games for dad to come out of the clubhouse and we'd go around and round up all the uh, concession uh, Coke cups, smash those into balls and find programs, roll those up and make those bats. So we were constantly doing little things like that when we grew up in that baseball environment. We were uh, rolled up socks. Because they had socks. And then uh, on the follow-through, I learned my follow-through was too long when I hit the uh, the light <laughs> on the top and shattered it. So um, we shortened up our swing after that, let's just say. So, well, it, it seems like nowadays, game, you would have been okay with that long follow-through finishing up there. Exactly. Everybody would think that that would be okay. Exactly. All right. Is that where all the games in the clubhouse came from then? Is just you guys growing up and doing just continuing it in the in the clubhouse? I think so. I mean, it, I don't think it re, re, ever resulted in that full contact football that we play in a couple of the clubhouses that uh, happened. But the the hockey um, that we play in Memorial Stadium and everything else. I mean, oh, you know, this junior meaning my bro. So if everybody knows, junior, he's one of the biggest kids there is, period. And there's a reason why he played 4 million games in a row. He always wanted to compete. He could never get enough. Even, you know, back in the day when we were, you know, young, young, playing hoops in the, in the driveway, I mean, Junior would get pissed at me for wanting to go in and get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I was hungry. He wanted to keep playing. And he would get mad if you left the court. And it didn't stop me because it was, I was going in and get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And he'd still be out there shooting. So there's a reason why he was able to do what he was able to do in his career. There's something wired in him that's a little bit different than the rest of us. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on him because this is about you. But um, I heard he was a prodigious wrestler in the clubhouse. Like he could beat anybody. He he liked, once again, it goes with that same type of stuff. He he never stopped. He's the biggest kid that you'll find. And he loved to grab people. He loved to wrestle. 
Um, you just had to kind of tell them, look, I ain't playing your game today. Go somewhere else. Find somebody else to be your little play toy because it's not going to be me. Oh, uh, so, so if you had a wrestling tag team partner, it would have been him, though. Like, if you had to pick someone you played with to wrestle as your tag team partner, it would, yeah. it would have been the brothers Ripken. I, I don't think there was any doubt about it. And he could have done all the dirty work and I could have tagged in after the dude was like laying down. I jump off the top rope and then yeah, be over. Finish him off. All right. Give me a, give me a tape ball story from Minnesota. Oh man. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. You know, I'm in Minnesota, by the way. I could, I, I never could play. Right. You know, my parent, I, I had my parents in, so it was like, I would leave after the game and, and go do family time and the, then come back the next day and hear tales of the tape ball game against the club. There was, there was four kids that wanted to come over in Minnesota early and, and they would actually know when we're coming into town, they come over and check on me. Brandon was talking about making the um, uh, sock balls. And yep. I started with a Sani, and then I would use the pre-wrap, then I would use the elastic wrap, and then I'd finish it off with white tape. And I would make a bunch of tape balls. And I remember the one kid's name, I called him Big E. His first name was Eric, probably about 16 years old. I don't remember his last name. But he come over and he saw me sitting on the training table making the tape balls. And he immediately got excited about the prospects of what was going to happen late night in the Dome. So when we played tape ball in the dome, I don't know how many I'd make, 30, maybe more. Um, intermission was when the homers were all in the stands at the Metrodome. Then we'd go get them, and then we'd play another little round till we hit all those balls into the stands as well. And we play in the outfield. So Brandon will know, will know this. All those uh, team names that were on the wall yep. were in the standings order. So we go out really? there and make it where there was a right field foul line with some team, the left field foul line with some team, and we put the the towel bases out there far enough, and we play some four on four uh, tape ball in the dome. And I think I made the best play of my career one night tape ball in the <laughs> dome in the Metrodome or the diving back because we were, no gloves, but somebody hit a rocket. I was playing short. Uh, dove backhand, catch it, comes up, throw across the diamond, rocket. But um, it was an awful lot of fun. And I do admit guilt when we got a little bit tight in the games that the clubhouse kids were challenging us a little bit. Um, I pitched a lot and Junior pitched a lot because we never let our pitchers that played pitch. Jimmy Poole was one of the guys that played uh, with us. Ben McDonald was another one. So we didn't let our pitchers pitch. And if it got a little tight, I admit, I kind of squished the tape ball a little bit, made it a little bit more saucer-like, and would throw a little bit of upshoots just to kind of aid the process of me getting some swing and misses. So if you're not kind of stretching the rules just a little bit, but then reason, you're not trying. But tape ball in the dome was an awful lot of fun. It, it sounds like what we know as the modern-day blitz ball, which is uh, you see those kids play in the leagues with the – the curves that curve about six feet and all that, but uh, maybe not to that extent. What outside of that, what, what are your memories of the dome? Because, you know, that's where I attended my first big league game and I had season tickets there when I was uh, 20 and before I started covering baseball. Um, but generally speaking, I've only heard the home side of playing in the dome, not the visitor side outside of what Greg has told me here the last two episodes. 
It was loud. Um, you know, so the first time it got really loud was 87. That's when you guys won it all, right? In right. 1987. Then you guys won it again in 91, mm-hmm. uh, I believe. Um, one of the more louder places to play in. And they were built so well for that ballpark. And uh, like Gagney and um, I'm brain cramping. Who played center? Well, Puckett and Gladden. they had Gladden. Yep. Gladden. Yeah. So when, when Gladden was there and, and Puck was there, cer- certainly, but they knew when they hit a gork over the infielder's head, it was a double. Yep. So if the shortstop or second baseman was running out, they knew that ball was going to take the highest bounce off of that turf. And if they ran out of the batter's box, right, they were going to get a double where the visiting team would come in and hit the same ball. And we're running down first base, begging to be a hit, like fall in, fall in, fall in. And then it would take that big bounce, but it was too late. But those dudes would hit the choppers or hit little bloops. And they knew that the ball was going to bounce. They knew it was good. And they got a lot of doubles that were not doubles that I don't think that the visiting teams got because we were begging too much for just the, the lousy single for it to draw some turf somewhere. They just knew that ballpark extremely well played really aggressive. They ran the bases hard first to third. You know, they had Gaetti, they had a Herbic on the corners that could do some damage. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, they put the ball in play. And when the ball was in play, they were aggressive on the bases. And that seemed to excite the fans even more. And they were they were loud in that dome. Where, where does it rank for the toughest places to catch a pop-up? Um, you know, I was I was well schooled enough by coming up there to have Junior say, "Don't take your eye off the ball in this place." Yeah. And I don't ever remember that being a problem losing one. I do remember a ball dropped in between me, and it might have been Jersey Joe Orsolak playing right, where it was so loud in there that I could have sworn he called it, and I stopped and I turned around, and looked, and the ball bounced and. Once again, it was a double because they were running out of the batter's box and doing that. So I don't ever remember losing a ball in any dome. And I think that was just because Junior was always a part of that prior to me. You know, look, day one, when you get into place, it was you were reminded, don't take your eye off of this. Stay with it the whole way. If you track it the whole way, you don't lose them. It's when you try to run to a spot and then look back up. That's when you have trouble. So I don't ever remember losing one. And that was just probably because of the schooling that was afforded me by my brother and certainly my father when he was there. And I'm sure the turf played true. So that was kind of nice. Oh, it, it was fast. Yeah, and but, you know, but it, good hops as far as, you know, kick I, up. But Yeah, everything was true. And the, the idea was, you know, when they talk about today's game and everything and the overshifts, I remember playing in front of the baggie when Herbeck was up. I just didn't do it with bases loaded like these people are doing in today's game. Right. And giving someone like – because Herbert could hit the ball the other way if you'd have made him. If, yeah. if he had two men on second and third with two outs, we weren't playing in, a, in an overshift type thing because he would hit the ball the other way. Absolutely. All right, on to you. What uh, favorite baseball memory? Well – because we talked about Junior a little bit, so and I didn't have the career or memories that necessarily he had. My first favorite memory, nothing can replace that first national anthem that I had when I got called up in 1987. 
I'm, I'm standing next to my brother during the national anthem on a big league field. Um, and then after the ball's thrown down and we throw it around and get ready to play, I look over to my left and it's Eddie Murray standing there and juniors to the right of me playing short. So that's something that will never, ever go away. And then it comes easy because my first big league homer happened, I don't know, a week later in Kansas City. And I'm hitting second in front of Junior. And I hit this ball and I hear Junior yell from the on-deck circle. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I, I don't hit too many homers, but that dude behind me does. And he must know this thing's gone, so it felt pretty good. So running around the bases, and I shake my brother's hand at home plate. And by the way, you shake your father's hand at the top step of the dugout because he was the manager at the time. Um, it, it did not suck. So, it, you know, some of my career moments, I had some days that were pretty good and, you know, decent outings, you know, four hits here and stuff like that. But I don't think I could ever replace, you know, standing next to your brother and then, you know, shaking your brother's hand and your father's hand when you hit your first big league homer. You know, a lot of parents see their kids' first games, but never in the situation that we were in. You know, they always, they're sitting in the stands, the family member at a distance. Um, I, I didn't have that. I had my family members right there. So that made it probably what's in my mind the most is those two days, the, the national anthem and the first home. Run. It's pretty wow. special. I, I, I mean, I, you know, everybody, you know, who's your favorite teammates? And I go to you and Cal just because it seems like you guys kind of taught me how to, how to, be a big leaguer, uh, you know, our time sitting somewhere after a game, whether it be a clubhouse or, you know, maybe the Kansas City Hotel Bar or something where we just right. got found and it was, you know, you guys going, okay, quit throwing this, throw this, <laughs> you know. And it was just hours of – that was, you know, that's probably my favorite – some of my favorite memories of just sitting in the clubhouse of either Memorial or Camden with you two guys and then whoever else wanted to join. And then Jimmy Tyler come walking in at about midnight going, All right, I need <laughs> can I have the pants? I need your pants. <laughs> you know what, Oli, it, it's funny. And it, you, you never want to get into that world of, you know, back in the day and you don't want to be confused that way, but I know firsthand guys don't sit in the clubhouse anymore. Um, they, they don't sit in there and talk. They may go somewhere else. But I know they're not doing it in the clubhouse. And I agree with you. When I look back at my playing days, um, I don't miss – I never missed the actual game. What I missed was what you just described right there because there, there can be some light bulb moments that go on. And, you know, I grew up with, with Junior. But there's no one – I already said he was the biggest kid out there. But he's, I don't think there's anybody more analytical. No, You know, that seems to be a noun nowadays or a verb. The, now, the analytics. Analytics is nothing more than information. And if you want some information, sit down with Junior and talk about it. Because you know, I know, we remember an awful lot about specific pitches during games from 1996. And we just, we, we remember it. And Junior remembers your pitches. And could say, you know what, you, you threw a hook in that situation after he fouled your heater down the first baseline. 
you kind of did them a favor right there. And it's, it's just kind of, it might not dawn on you at the point in time because you go, okay, this is my bread and butter. This is what I want to get to. And I got a chance to get to it and punch them out, but you just did them a favor by doing it. And that was rare to say that you did anybody a favor by throwing a hook, but just where the bat head was and just talking about those things after the, the game. And like you said, if you would sit in there and anybody else wanted to join, I remember junior holding court with, one of the smarter humans in the world was Musina. Yeah. Moose would come in and Junior would go, okay, you know, because he's got the full repertoire of pitches. He threw anything he wanted and everything else. So Junior could have a field day talking about the bat head positioning and everything else. And with all his repertoire of pitches, he didn't have any one pitch that was a specialty pitch like yours. You know, your hook was as good a hook as anybody had in the game. So he pitched with the four pitches and the know-how and everything else. But when you'd see Junior talk to him and him kind of like shake his head a little bit, it was all good after he finished the New York Times crossword puzzle. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> who uh, who were some of your favorite guys to compete against? Because, um, you know, that, that era, especially in the 90s, which is when I, you know, I started getting into it, I just feel like – and we've talked with Greg too uh, – guys were on teams for longer terms and sure, you know, you felt more of a legacy thing like Kirby Puckett and Ken Herbeck were twins for a long time. And even some of the secondary guys, I mean, Shane Mack was there for a long time and a bunch of other guys. Who did you like competing against back in those days that, uh, you know, maybe even brought out the best in you, or you just like to have a, a front row seat to watch this guy play. Well, I think it goes back, you know, you mentioned Kirby. I played against Kirby in uh, rookie ball when he was in Elizabeth in Tennessee and I was in Bluefield. Mm-hmm. So I saw him then. Then, of course, I saw him in the big leagues. I mean, obviously, his career and my career did not parallel each other. <laughs> but he was fun to play against Griffey when you watched him play center field and you, you watched him. He could do anything in the game of baseball to beat you. Mm-hmm. Um, so he could hit a homer, yes, but he could bunt. If you would have given him the bunt, he'd steal second. He'd score on a hard base hit to yep. one of your outfielders with a good arm. Yep. And he would still score. Um Molitor and Yount, you know, when you played against those guys at that time frame and you watched them do what they, they did, it amazed you. I was always amazed at um, Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker as a tandem. When you talk about guys don't play on the same team anymore for as extended period of time, those guys played 17 years together. Right. And were pretty dominant. And the interesting thing about Trammell I thought was really cool when I was in the minor leagues and I was going to instructional league, one of those seasons. Um, so I was home for what, two weeks, three weeks after the season, juniors playing the Tigers. So this might've been the 83 season. Mm-hmm. So um, junior said, look, I know when you come to the game today, you're going to sit with your buddies in the right field stands, drink a few beers, act like a goofball and everything else. Just do me a favor and watch Trammell play short. He goes, don't necessarily watch me. Watch Trammell play short. His feet are always underneath him. His release point is always here. The ball is always true going to first base. The first baseman doesn't have to work to catch it. Um, and I think that was pretty, um, I guess, eye-opening when you have a dude at junior status basically tells his little brother, when you come to the game, they just watch Trammell play short. At that point in time, I was a shortstop in the minor league system. So, you know, those guys that I named – 
they were fun to play against because you could see these guys and you wondered, you know, how am I actually even on this field with them? Mm -hmm. um, but you also see the consistency they had and the length of their careers and what they were able to do. So it was kind of fun watching those guys play for sure. I mean, there's, there's an endless amount of guys that we could go through and name uh, on each team, but those kind of just jumped out at me right there when you said that. No, I mean, you know what? I mean, for you guys listening to this, that analyzation by Cal and Billy of, you know, Trammell was what we got almost every night of pointing something out that somebody did, pointing out, you know. And so it was not breaking down two weeks ago. It was just breaking. It was a couple hours of just breaking down the game that we played. We didn't have ESPN on the television. We just sat in the room, you know, might have had a couple milks and just hung out and talked baseball. So it was, I mean, it was an amazing experience. And it's one of my favorites. And then I know we're kind of going on it, but uh, <laughs> just giving you guys that point of perspective of what Billy just broke down Trammell's throwing and, and playing. Um, that was, it was fun. It was a blast. It was just, uh, you know, I, know, I don't think I ever left a clubhouse before midnight. Yeah, granted. I don't even know. I think Midnight's doing a, a big service. If you said that, um, I'm probably I'm didn't leave too many uh, many hours after that. But the the idea yeah. that we we liked we liked being there. We liked the game. We liked watching those guys. And really, my father always said this too: that there's always something to be done on the baseball field. So in the in the sense of anyone. Because I'm from the camp that I don't think there's near as much wrong with this game as everybody leads on mm -hmm. in today's world about, well, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to do it. No, the game's still pretty good. And if the game's three hours and 30 minutes and you're actually engaged in the game and being in the game, Senior always said there's something to be done when you're sitting in the dugout. Yes, you can have your good time, and yes, we want to have fun and while we play the game. But if you can pick something out on a baseball field and you can actually learn something that goes on during that time period, you're going to be better off for it. If you can take something from everybody you ever run into in the game, whether you're playing against them or with them, you take one thing from each person, think how much better off you're going to be. So mm -hmm. if, you, if you just sit there and look at the game and watch the game, there's so much more that goes on then I guess meets the the ordinary eye if you want to actually engage yourself and learn something. I love that because I love uh, the the inside baseball references. You know, like I was reading a book and it was like, excuse me, the uh, you know the second baseman and the shortstop flashing little signs like, hey, I'm gonna cheat this way or cheat that way or back up because this is a fastball. And to me, those things are fascinating because the average fan isn't gonna pick up on any of that. But I kind of want to see what the guys are doing between the lines um, where the TV camera isn't at any given moment. Well, here's one. So I mentioned Molitor before. And I'm glad he was our guest last about, week, by the way. And I'm, I'm glad you said something about communication and everything else. So you learn quickly when you're playing next to Junior. And I've already mentioned Musina. So let's just stay with that case study. Musina against Molitor. Yeah. So Paul Molitor comes up to bat. And Mike Musina is on the bump. And he's feeling pretty good. He's got a pretty good groove going his last few outings and everything else. So you know this is a nice matchup. So we may start playing Paul, Paul Molitor a certain way. 
At second base, I'm going to play him basically one pull up, one step up the middle. Junior's playing him straight up at short. He's got the third baseman playing him even with the bag because we know Paul Molitor could bunt, especially when he was back in Milwaukee mm -hmm. and he was running. The first baseman's going to be one step in the hole next to me where we have him playing. Moose Peppers, a fastball strike 101. I go to straight up. Junior goes one up the middle. Short, third baseman backs up. First baseman goes one step towards the line again. If it gets even back in the count, I might stay there depending on what the pitch selection was or, or what, you know, what Molitor looked like. But there might be five different spots that we would stand mm -hmm. against Paul Molitor in the field during that one at bat, depending on how the count went and, and everything else. And now we, we have the players that are pulling their cheat sheets out of their pockets and they're, re they're looking on here. This is where I'm told to stand. I don't think they stand anywhere else but what that cheat sheet says stand. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they have the freedom to say, um, uh, I saw his swing and I'm going to adjust my position. So the learning part of the game and the thought process part of the game, I think is suffering a little bit because of the, the verb or the noun, the analytics, where they know where he's going to hit it. And this might be 500 plate appearances. Now, one plate appearance against Mike Messina, right. but there's 500 plate appearances. And I think the information at hand, if we talk about analytics, should be the very information that you're watching with your own two eyes during the game. And that seems to be ignored right now. And I enjoyed moving a little bit subtly like Junior was commanding. He was the captain of the infield. And by the way, he must have done it pretty well because he led the league in chances, total chances, many times. Mm-hmm. He led the league in assists. He led the league in putouts. And we know he played 162 games. That's a given. But there were also guys playing 160 back, back then, too. Yep. So if you lead the league in total chances, you can't say he was wrong about his positioning and how he went about his business. So Man. that was just one little case study with two guys that are going at it competing. And if you watch what's happening during those at-bats, you may adjust where you stand as a defensive player. Defensive player. Yeah. Uh, what 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 did his signs look like? What I mean, what was what you would you would look at him and he'd give you a one. What what would he what would he say? Because obviously he had to move Worthington over at third base or right. You know. He he would look and if he would see something too, he, he would just do that. If he wanted me one with him. He he'd put his this up and move his glove hand, you know, like towards second or whatever, and you know. If, if, you know, we're playing Balboni back in the day and bye-bye Balboni's up and it goes 2-0 real quick, Junior's deep in the hole, and he might look at me and go, which means come on the other side a second. We would completely overshift him with nobody on because Bones was thinking about one thing, going left center 450 feet. He wasn't even thinking about going the other way. So I think just mere little gestures like this, and, if, and he would do it every pitch of every game. And if there was a potential base runner on first base that could steal, he was giving signs of coverage every pitch, no matter who was up and on plate. Even if it was wow. the same sign, we're still going through the process of giving it every time so you never look away. And I'm pretty sure in today's game it is predetermined. Now, they don't run as much. They don't hit and run as much in today's game. But it's predetermined who's going to cover the base. And if you did want to hit and run, I think the hitter would have a pretty big advantage in today's game on you know who's going to cover 
if I can take one shot that way, we might be able to go first and third. Wow. That's it. I, there's two teams that you played on that I want to ask you about. And the first one is the mid, generally speaking, mid nineties Rangers. I feel like for me as a young fan, they were a whole lot of fun because you go Juan Gonzalez. I mean, Jose Canseco there for a while, uh, Rusty Greer at some point, they could really hit. It was always kind of, could they pitch, you know, they had Roger Pavlik and Kenny Rogers at times, but I always felt like they were such an entertaining team to watch. What were they like to play on? Well, they, they were pretty fierce in the batter's box. I don't think there's yeah. any doubt about that. And yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Rusty Greer because a lot of people yes. seem to leave him off when they talk about the Rangers and they go, okay, Canseco, Juan Gonzalez, Julio Franco, Rafael Palmero, um, Pudge Rodriguez. Yeah. Um, the thing about Rusty Greer yeah. that was pretty amazing, all those guys I just named right there, when Rusty was healthy and playing, he hit third. And back in the day – the three-hole hitter was the one you wanted. Um, I know they argue with that now. I would still contest that the three-hole hitter is the one I want, so I'm yep. putting my best hitter in the three spot to, to do damage. But with all those players I just named, Rusty Greer would hit third for the Texas Rangers. And if you look back at his numbers, I think one of the years he drove in 100, he had 18 homers, drove in 100 runs. Sheesh. There's guys that hit 40 home runs and drive in 90, which means they drove themselves in 40. And yeah. they only drove in 50 other people. Right. Rusty had 18 homers and drove in a hundred. And you can say that the RBI is a dependent <laughs> stat if you want. I don't want to, because there's a knack for guys being able to hit with men in scoring position and do that damage. So when you played in Texas and I was there, um, we definitely had capable pitchers throughout the years. You know, Kevin Brown was there. Kenny Rogers, yeah. you mentioned Pavlik. <laughs> Uh, got to play with Nolan Ryan his last year in 1993 was my first year there. Um, so that was a lot of fun playing with big techs. They definitely had some people, but never seemed to like fire at the right times. Yeah. But there was no doubt about it. That team could put up some runs. Juan Gonzalez. I don't know how much he, he drove in one of his, I think he was in a 140 range one year. Well, he had 40, he drove in 140. I think he had 46 homers in 93. If I want to, I want to say. And he might have 140 stakes. Probably. Um, this dude was an RBI machine. And he could be facing the best in any given day. And if he had a opportunity in that one game to drive in a run, he seemed to figure out a way to do that because he had a knack for driving in runs for sure. Now, the before I let Oli jump back in, and I bet you don't talk about this team that much, but I bet Greg knows where I'm going with this. The 1995 Buffalo Bisons are <laughs> – one of my all-time favorite teams to talk about, and it's because, as Greg explained to me, with the strike, it was kind of weird guys signing and all that fun stuff. Um, not entirely unlike what's going on right now in the sense that things didn't happen, although it's a lockout instead of a strike. But on baseball reference, they do bold blue ink for guys who played in the big leagues on the minor league pages. And you just go down this list. So you're fourth in plate appearances, second in games played. But this team had guys who were either – had been big leaguers or would be big leaguers, just an incredible collection of personalities, talent, you name it. Nobody, nobody's going to say they loved playing in the minor leagues, but I got to ask you, what was that 1995 <laughs> team like? Cause you were there from stem to stern. Right. So first of all, let's talk about the, the work stoppage and why it's similar to right now, because yeah. if spring training doesn't open a non-rostered invitee, is not going to have the opportunity to be a non-rostered invitee. Right. And 
my whole career, half of my career, the back half of my career, if I had an opportunity to go into spring training and make a team, I made the team. 95 rolls around. Um, Mark Shapiro calls me with the Cleveland Indians at the time, says, we want you to go to short uh, Buffalo and play short. I go, I don't want to go to Buffalo and play short. And he goes, well, what other option you got? I go, uh, none right now. I go, yeah. when's opening day? He said, in nine days for the AAA team. I went to spring training for five days. Um played in two games in spring training and went up north. And arguably I had my best year of my career Yeah, nice year for, for the Bisons playing every day. Once that season started and you, you talked about the bold print, you know, I'm looking around the locker room and okay, John Farrell, Les Lancaster, Joe Clink, um, Ole was a part of that squad for a little yep. bit. Paul yep. Shuey. At one time we had Ole and Shuey. Um, closing out games. Wow. Um, but David Bell playing third. I played short. Casey Candell and Tori Lavella played second. Uh, Herb Perry and Tim Costco played first. Jesse Levis and Brooke Cordice caught. Lloyd McClendon was the DH. We had Ruben Amar Jr. And we had Brandon Charles and Jeremy Burnitz yep. um, playing the outfield. And no disrespect to any other team I was on and any other teammates. It is the most fun. I ever had playing baseball. Yeah. And the problem was it was in triple A yeah. and it, it, it seems to be a shame. And the, 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 as luck would have it that year, the Cleveland Indians in 144 game season, won hundred games and lost 44. Yeah. And they didn't need anything from the squad that was down below. Yeah. And I remember sitting in my locker after a game in Buffalo one day. And as Ole would say, I'm having a few milks sitting there. And Joe Clink comes over and sits next to me, a little left-handed reliever. And he's smoking his heater. And he's going, what are you doing? And I said, I had a pretty good day. I'm just sitting here enjoying it. And he goes, you're going to rot here. He goes, they don't want you up there. They don't need any help. They're the 27 Yankees. Yeah. And he just made this little bit of joke. He goes, we're all rotten here. And he's just blowing his heater, just having a little conversation. But the, the group that we had there, and Brian Graham was our manager. I mean, he wasn't much older than the rest of us. In fact, I think Lloyd McClendon was probably <laughs> older than, um, than yeah, Brian Graham was. But we had so much fun playing that year. And I think we were kind of like an expansion club. And the only reason I guess we didn't win the whole thing is we ran into young Mr. Bennis, mm. Alan Bennis, yeah. who was pitching for the Louisville team that year. We played them in the finals, and he won game one and game five because we just couldn't touch that dude. He was he was throwing hard, and he had some cut. But um, I, I've talked to Farrell about it. I've talked to Lavello about it. talked to McClendon about it when they were all managing at any specific time. And they all go back to that squad that we had that year. The, the problem was we were in 3A playing baseball, but it was about as much fun as I think I've ever had actually playing the game. Well, and how you explained it is how you get uh, five guys with 485-plus play appearances, uh, six guys with 100-plus games played just on the position player side of things. But when you're behind by Erga, Vizquel, I think Tra Travis Fryman maybe at third base, um, no, it was uh, Tommy was still playing third. He's, okay, he was still over at third. So then, because um, they had Sorrento <laughs> playing first, and Eddie Murray was the DH, and yep. Winfield was the DH. And, yep. Yeah, they didn't need any help. 
That's for well, sure. Let me hand it back to Oli, and then I'll have one more, and we'll let you go. No, I mean, you just you nailed it. That was that was about as much fun. Joe Clink just <laughs> me the pessimistic side of life, and that was like, yeah, I know. I appreciate it. Jose Mesa had the year of his life. Or, <laughs> yeah, he yeah, did. I'm sitting back down there going, come on. Ain't that easy. Don't be alone um, here. So i got to be a question about your dad. What what I never saw what relationship you guys had on in the clubhouse, on the field, you know, between you, Cal, and him. I mean, how much baseball was being talked was, you know, was there any of that? Oh, well, sure. I mean, there was almost like a unspoken language, too. I think Junior's actually talked about that before, about some of me and him playing up the middle together. There was an unspoken language that you, you could tell by looking. Um, you know, Senior had this old, gruff kind of exterior of, you know, what's it like to manage your two sons in big leagues? Well, when I was in the minor leagues managing, he would say, I had 23 sons. You know, they're all your sons when you're min- managing there. You're their, their big brother. You're their father. You're the disciplinarian. You're everything. And he would list these things. But I know, and Junior knows, that he may have uh, shaken Eddie's Mur- Eddie Murray's hand on a homer and shaking our hand on a homer. There's a different handshake there um, when it's your father that yeah. you're doing something in that situation. So um, it, w- it was so funny. I remember one story, Ole, when I was um, – I made my first – and if there was one thing I could do in the game, I, I didn't necessarily – say I could do a whole lot, but I would catch the ball and throw the ball where I was supposed to. I was pretty good at that. And I remember making an error in Memorial. Ball went up the middle. I went up the middle as a second baseman. I kind of treated it like I was a shortstop doing a six to four from about behind second base. And I threw it a little wide to first base. I still to this day think Eddie was a little late to the bag and he didn't have good footwork. (laughs) He could have saved me one. And I came off the field. And I went down into Memorial Stadium and I sat on that, uh, the lower steps that were going to go back down and then up again to the clubhouse. I was sitting on the lower steps. I was pissed. And Senior comes down and he goes, did you treat that out like it was important? And I basically, you know, started griping about it. Eddie got to the bag late. And he goes, mm, did you treat that out like it was important? And the quick cut to the quick of it was, no, I didn't. And you had to admit that. Mm-hmm. So you're not only admitting it to the manager of the club, but you're admitting it to your father. And he pointed at me. He still had his lucky strike heater in his thing. Oh. And he was, don't do it again. And turned around and walked away. And I know from that day forward, I treated the outs like they were important because they were. And when you get those kind of messages um, from a baseball man, and yet it's your father at the same time, there's something to be said for that. We had a few moments where we certainly didn't discuss the game. And if we were struggling uh, at some point in time and we could go find a place to eat, um, we would do that. And you'd have two sons and a father that would have dinner after a game. And that was just to try to get away from it yeah. and not talk about the game. But the, the talking about the game and the little messages that he laid on. I've always said this about senior. You know, Junior would have played in the big leagues because he's six foot four, 225 pounds. He was gifted. If he didn't have senior influencing him, 
Junior would have never been a Hall of Famer, in my opinion. Wow. And he would have never been the Iron Man for sure. Because seniors' guidance and seniors' influence on him was such. Seniors' influence on me was completely different because I didn't have the stuff that Junior had to work with. And Senior was fair with us, and he was fair with me. Some people are taken back when I'd say that Senior told me one time, because you're not your brother. You can't do the things that he can do. And people go, oh, that's a terrible thing for a father to say. No, no, no. That's a real thing for a father to say. But he always said, if you find out that you do the things that you're supposed to do and can do, you're going to find out that most of the time that's going to be good enough. So he was accurate. So I think his influence on me probably got me into the big leagues as far as that was concerned, because who knows what could happen. But I don't think Junior would have been the Iron Man without no. Senior. And I certainly don't know if I would have ever made it. So he, he he took two sons that had some ability. One had much more than the other one. And he was able to make this guy this guy. And he was able to make this guy down here this guy. And I think that's just what we need to be as coaches in the first place. If we get a guy that's got something, we need to make him something plus. And Senior had that ability for sure. He did it with me and Junior, and he did it with all those guys that came up through the minor league system through the years. Uh, if you get a run, that's fine. I just want to ask uh, if you don't, if you do have time, uh, can you tell us about Ripken baseball? Sure. Yeah, I mean it's it's just it's, I like to start the show with what guys are up to, but uh, we had to get the WCW thing. Out right, of, of course, so that was yeah. what I was up to. We started Ripken baseball and we lost, you know senior we didn't know what to do and we wanted to honor um senior so the foundation and ripkin baseball they're two different entities but it's still about giving kids i think a little bit of chance at something and the ripkin baseball part of it with our tournament destinations we got one in aberdeen maryland we got myrtle beach uh, south carolina and we got pigeon forge tennessee we built facilities and we built ballparks for kids to play tournaments in because me and junior knew what it was like to play in the big leagues. We knew what it was like to go into Fenway park. You know, it's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it is pretty cool. We know that most kids don't have that are not going to have that opportunity. The percentage of kids that play in the big leagues, very, very small compared to all those people playing. But we figured if we built something nice enough for these guys to go and play and enjoy, when they stopped playing baseball at age 14 and they came through Aberdeen and played some tournament games and they played in seniors yard, which looks like Camden yards. They played in our mini Fenway. They played in these ballparks. What's to say they're not going to be able to go when they're 28 year old and they have a kid of their own, go to the real Fenway and have stories about mm -hmm. the time that they were 12 years old playing at our facility. So if we can energize these guys to play, provide a good tournament experience for them. We have really good operational staffs at all the facilities I mentioned. I think we run tournaments extremely well, and I think kids have a really good time when they come there. And the fields are really, really good. And we want those kids to be able to have that experience, and hopefully they look back on those experiences when they're grown up and have kids of their own and they become baseball fans for life, even though they're not baseball players anymore. But if we can energize that, we think we're doing our part 
aiding along in the baseball mission of trying to grow the game. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Ole, that's all I got. No, Take man, away. Billy, thank you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. You got it, boys. I appreciate yeah. it. No, no thanks for coming on. And, uh, you know, we, we did a we did an episode on your family to, to get things underway back last summer. Maybe check that out. But otherwise, we can't thank you enough for your time. Yeah. All right. Well, you got to get Gunier on there, Ole. Let's see if you can pull that one off. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be good. Hey, he sits in front of the monitor now. I think you can get him. Yeah, all right. Well, in the mean, meantime, Dude, I think you're, you're working. Man. Thank you. Great catching up this last week. I think in the meantime, you're working on Todd Stottlemyre for one of our next ones. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we had Tom that's Kelly, a good one. Paul Molitor the last few. Uh, check those out if you're listening or watching us on YouTube. Uh, he's Bill Ripkin. Thank you so much for the time. He's Greg. Olson and I'm Brandon Warren signing off saying thank you so much for checking out that 90s baseball pod powered by Access Twins. We'll catch you later. Peace. <laughs>